We have been in a sermon series on the uh, book of Romans, and last week we preached and came to the final verse-by-verse sermon in Romans. So if you haven't been with us or are new to this church, the way that we typically do sermon series is we uh, go through a book or a portion of scripture, and we go verse by verse by verse by verse. And last week, we got to the end, the final verse of the final chapter in Romans. And so what we're going to do for the next, uh, I think, four or five weeks or so, is we're going to do some topical messages that come from the book of Romans. So we're not opposed to either form of preaching, and we wanted to take some time and pull out a few topics that came up in the book of Romans and and circle back to them and, and preach on what we felt was significant. So one of the things that's significant in Romans, before I get into the message today, is um, especially when you look at the final chapter in 16, the amount of different people that Paul mentions from a ministry and a collaboration standpoint. And that's important to us as a local church as well. We have many ministry and church partnerships, and we are all part of what's called the body of Christ. And so I wanted to take some time and just mention a few of those today and spend some time just praying for them. The first is Advanced Community Church. That's our, um, our, you see the signs here, Acts 29 is the church planning network we are a part of. Advanced Community Church is the other Acts 29 um, Pittsburgh local church here. They're in Gibsonia. And they do, actually, those chairs you're sitting on that are nice and comfortable, those come compliments of um, Advanced Community Church. They just bought a new building. They had some leftover extra chairs and they donated it to us. So they're a partner that we appreciate and want to keep lifted in prayer. The other church partner is Covenant Fellowship. Again, this building that we're meeting in, Covenant Fellowship, um, graciously lends it to us and lends us their space. Um, We're partnered with them on a number of ministry collaborative efforts. That food truck that happens every Saturday, that's a collaborative effort between us and them. We've done many prayer walks together, and we want to pray for and and bless them as well. University Reformed, uh, I was talking to their pastor a couple weeks ago at our last family dinner. He's been a dear friend of ours for a long time, a dear friend of Eddie's particularly, And we've done collaborative ministry efforts today. Their church meets in Oakland, and they are a a solid ministry partner for us and one we want to keep lifted in prayer as well. The Bible Chapel here in Wilkinsburg and the Christian Church of Wilkinsburg. uh, Eddie, when I talk to him, he says Wilkinsburg at times is called the Holy City because of the amount of churches that are here. So that's two of, of many churches that are here in Wilkinsburg that have been here for years, that have done good, faithful ministry. And we want to pray for them as well because they've been a great ministry partner to us. And then the final church I'll mention, University Community Church in Gulu, Uganda. So someone actually, one of the the brothers in in Uganda sent me a picture today of Pastor Chris and our deacon, um, uh, one one of our deacons over there, uh, Eric, I was forgetting his name, Deacon Eric over there in Gulu, Uganda right now, putting on a ministry conference. So University Community Church in Gulu, their pastor's, lead pastor's name is Pastor Jimmy. And we've been partnered with him for a number of years now and want to continue to do collaborative efforts like we're doing now over in Gulu. So uh, Christianity and, and, and church planning is not a territory game. We are all in this together and we are all on one team for Jesus. And so I want to spend some time just praying for other churches in the city and other churches that we're partnered with. So please join me in prayer. Father, we, um, by grace, are welcomed into and a part of this this great, magnificent body of Christ. And I thank you for the different members and different groups of members that are expressed through local churches, um, ones that that are either partnered with us or in the same community or geography as us, 
but ones that are on the same mission as us, to spread the message of the hope of Jesus God. So we pray for University Reformed, University Community Church, for the Christian Church of Wilkinsburg, God, for all the churches, Covenant Fellowship, for Advanced Community Church, Lord, that their members would be encouraged by the gospel, that their leaders would remain faithful to the gospel, that everyone in those churches who comes in contact with them would hear and, and understand and know the gospel, and that you would work in those local church communities, the practicals of ministry, the times where they need to raise funds or organize members or organize leaders, Lord, that leaders would be raised up effectively, that there would be effective um, discipleship and evangelism that comes out of all these churches, Lord, that there would be a, a tangible sense of your grace amongst the preaching, the singing, the outreaches, the community events, the things that they do um, differently and, and oftentimes better um, than we do, God. Continue to work in grace through those churches and continue to see us as a body of Christ here locally in Pittsburgh, partnered together to advance the mission of Jesus. Allow us to continually even see that across the world with University Community Church in Gulu. And, and would you raise up faithful partners, faithful pastors to co-labor together to see your gospel advance, God. We do pray as Jesus prayed that we would, as the body of Christ, be one. That we would be a testimony to the fact that you, um, that Jesus was the, indeed the, the sent one, the Messiah of God because of our oneness, because of our unity. So I pray for unity amongst all churches here in Pittsburgh, amongst all churches in the U.S., amongst all churches in the world, God, that we would put aside things that are secondary, things that are tertiary, things that are um, unnecessary quarrels or squabbles, God, and that we would partner together for the primary mission of seeing your gospel advanced, of seeing unity amongst believers and unity in the church, God. We thank you, we praise you, and we want to do this by your power. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. As I said, we are in Romans, and today, for our topical sermon, we are actually going to look at that last chapter in Romans, Romans chapter 16, and we're going to look from a topical perspective at verses 1 through 16. So Romans 16, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the Lord at Centrea that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to, whom only I, to, to not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the, the church in their house. Greet my beloved Appenitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my brother in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ. Greet my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Arstrobolus, Greet my fellow kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those, worker, greet those workers in the Lord in Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet uh, Asyncritus. Greet Phlegion. Greet Hermes. Greet Petrobus. Greet Hermas. And greet the brothers who are with them. Greet Philagus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister. 
and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I think the hardest part of the sermon is over, getting through those names. Um, You may not remember where you were on January 28th, 2022, but I can guarantee where you were not. I highly doubt that you were at the Fern Hollow Bridge at 6 a.m. on January 28th, 2022. The Fern Hollow Bridge is right there on uh, Braddock and Forbes. It connects Regent, um, Regent Square and Squirrel Hill. It's a pretty big, probably almost a quarter mile stretch of bridge, pretty big. And on January 28th, 2022 at 6 a.m., the Fern Hollow Bridge collapsed. Some of you remember that picture of the, the Pittsburgh bus being lifted out of the wreckage. Luckily, no one was hurt. Um, There were some cars that were on it, but everyone came out okay. And since the bridge unexpectedly collapsed, the city's been scrambling to try to get it back put up together because the traffic flow, especially on Penn and Braddock, has been backed up because no one can cross the bridge right now. As of a few weeks ago, they say that the bridge is almost done. It's supposed to be done by the end of the year. And one of the major milestones in the project was they took new steel beams to reinforce where the cement and concrete would go and they started transporting them and putting them in place. And there's this giant crane, if you look at pictures of it, taking these giant steel beams and putting them in place, reinforcing the new bridge. These foundational beams were said to be one of the reasons that the old bridge collapsed. It's it's kind of unfortunate. You can read um, reports where people had historically documented that the bridge had what, what was written in one report, severe corrosion and holes and webs and bracing and connections. So people documented over time that this bridge was not in good shape. Now the new beams are the foundation of, like I said, what will hopefully be a newer and safer bridge. And I think the lesson we can all learn from the Fern Hollow Bridge is that unreliable foundations soon lead to ruin. The Fern Hollow Bridge had a deteriorating foundation that was well documented that eventually led to its ruin. And I think it's telling that the news, uh, KDKA, perhaps with the encouragement of some people, Uh, ran a story about how they were putting in new steel beams, probably to highlight the fact that like, hey, we're not just going to reuse old stuff. This bridge is going to be new. It's going to be good. It's going to work. You can trust it. Um, You know, sometimes when you have something like a tire that pops with a a nail in it, you can just patch it up and and move on. And I think they were kind of trying to communicate to people like, hey, we're not just going to patch up this bridge. Like, we're we're really going to build it good and new so that you can trust it because it's a pretty critical part of where people travel through in the city. And I think we'd all have questions, right? If we looked up and saw them pulling stuff out of the wreckage and trying to put it back in the new bridge, people would be concerned because I think we all intrinsically know that unreliable foundations soon lead to ruin. Now, while we might know that's true, we don't always live that way. In fact, one of the controversies, like I said, with the Fern Hollow Bridge and the collapse of it was that no one paid attention to the reports people were writing about, hey, there's collapses in the foundation, there's deterioration, there's things that aren't looking well, that aren't up to code. And people probably thought, no, the Fern Hollow Bridge has been there for decades, it's fine. There's plenty of other good things in the city we want to focus on, plenty of other nice things that people will really get their attention. So let's just let that go on for another year or two. And then out of nowhere, it collapsed. No one expected it because the foundation was poor. We've been going through Romans, and we've seen a lot of really good things, a lot of things that are worthy of our attention, things that maybe get your attention, a lot of cool terms, terms like justification, terms like depravity, terms like missions or God's sovereignty. There's a lot of good things in Romans. Ecclesiology, the study of God's people. Sanctification, the study of how God's people become more like Jesus. But there's one particular thing in Paul's life 
that was foundational that I don't want us to miss. Now, this is not explicitly called out in Paul's writings, but I think the topic jumps out if you listen for it and if you read through Romans, particularly the passage we just read through. Now, we talked extensively about Paul, his life as a missionary, the things he did in the church, his powerful conversion story, his theology, and many other great things about him. But like I said, there's one foundational thing that I don't want us to look past. And just like the Fern Hollow Bridge, if we look past this foundational thing, it can lead to our ruin. What is that thing? Proverbs 18, 24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The foundation that I don't want us to look past this evening is friendship. Merriam-Webster describes friendship as one who attaches himself by affection or esteem to another. The NIV says one who has unreliable friends comes to ruin. The ESV says one who has many friends, almost like they're so unreliable that you just have to keep rotating them in and out. One who has many friends, just like you might have many tires you put on a car because they keep popping. One who has many friends comes to ruin. Either way, there's a contrast here, right? You can have unreliable friends or you can have many friends where you have to keep swapping them in and rotating them out. But then there's the one, there's one friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, this one friend, like Merriam-Webster defines, this one friend is one who attaches himself to us through affection or esteem. And this one friend attaches himself to us so closely that Proverbs says, this friend sticks closer than a brother. Who is this one friend? It's not your BFF. It's not the friend that you always hoped or dreamed for. It's not the imaginary friend that you maybe had when you were a kid. Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. We read this before in his own words. Jesus talks about this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us friends, not just disciples, not just children, but friends. And Jesus, laying down his life for us, is the best and greatest display of esteem or affection, of love, and of friendship. This is how he attaches himself to us, like the Merriam-Webster definition says. And Jesus tells his disciples that we are indeed ultimately his friends if, in response to his love and his friendship for us, we do and respond what he commands us to do, which is love one another. There are different descriptions of what Christ's love looks like that I think maybe come to mind before friendship. You read in Ephesians, right? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Or 1 Peter talks about pastors shepherding the church as Christ is ultimately the over-shepherd of all of us. First John talks about saying you can't love God whom you can't see without saying you love, you love your brother whom you can see, right? So there's all these descriptions of friendship that maybe, or love, that don't always necessarily jump to friendship. And plenty has been said about marriage and church. There's been a lot about pastors and church members loving and uh, esteeming each other well loving other Christians, but I appreciate here that Jesus uses friendship as the illustration for how we should love each other and as the illustration for ultimately how he loves us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of good teaching on how to be a good husband. I'm sure we have plenty of books in the bookstore that talk about that, be a good husband or be a good wife. 
I've heard plenty of teaching about how to be a good church member. We have actually, when you become a member of this church, there are two books you read that talk about how to be a good church member, a good church leader, or how to be a good friend. But not a lot on how to be a good friend. Now, maybe the reason that friendship feels so neglected in the church is it's also neglected in our culture. There was a 2021 study that talked about recently how uh, half of all Americans have fewer than three friends. That number was 25% in 1990. So in 1990, only 25% of Americans said they had fewer than three friends. So the amount of people who are in your life, who know you well as a friend, has, is decreasing in our culture today. And today, I think there are other factors as well. If you throw in things like social media, where you have a, a thousand or so friends whom can see into your life, but never actually are around you or can be face-to-face with you, person-to-person with you, you throw in the fact that we've lived through a pandemic these last few years and people have been isolated and, and separate from each other. You throw in the fact that things are increasingly polarized and there are political and racial divisions in our society. It might make sense why friendship, even in the broader culture, is on the decline. So what this might mean is that one of the most countercultural ways in 2022 to be a Christian and to represent Jesus is to be a good friend. Remember, Jesus uses friendship as a way to illuminate his love for us, his laying down his life for us, and he commands us to love each other. And that one another includes those inside the church, but it also includes those outside, right? Jesus calls his disciples friends after he taught them what they knew. So what that means for us is that this discipleship process can be pretty mystifying and hard to think about or, or difficult to grasp with. What does it mean to make a disciple? I think one of the foundational ways to make a disciple is to make a friend. If you can make a friend, you can make a disciple. Now, if we look at Romans 16, one of the foundational ways that I think friendship comes out in Paul's writing is you read this long list of names, and there's this insistence in Romans 16 on greeting people. Greet this person. Greet that person. And it even goes so far as to say, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's that culture's way of saying, give a, give a loving embrace. It'd almost be like saying, give this person a hug for me. Embrace them. Greet them. You've probably been around people with uh, whom you are close to, maybe your associates with, but you don't go out of your way to greet them. You do the bare minimum. They, they walk past in the hallway and you give them the nod and they give you the nod and you keep it moving. Or you say good morning because it's rude, but you don't really go out of your way to greet them and to embrace them. And that's what Paul is saying here. Greet these people. Embrace these people. What I like about Paul is that he's going out of his way to say greet these people and embrace these people here. But there are other times in Scripture where Paul's not so much on good terms with people, and he makes it pretty clear, um, I'm actually in pretty sharp disagreement with this person. So this is Paul and Timothy. He says, For Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So Paul kind of giving these final greetings is not taken for granted because there are times where he says, actually, me and this person are not on good terms. This person caused me a lot of harm. So he makes it clear where there's strain in his relationships. But I like at the end of Romans, we get this picture of his clear foundational friendships. And what I like about the friendships mentioned here in Romans 16 is there's variety to them. And I'll just spend some time going through and documenting the different angles and ways that friendship is a factor in Paul's life. It's a foundational part of his ministry. 
The first here, and we have to remember Paul is, from what we can um, understand and from what most people would say, Paul is not married. So Paul, in his friendships, first and foremost, has friendships and relationships that transcend what we would consider traditional family. He says, greet Prisca or Priscilla. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Now, this is a married couple. They have a church that meets in their house. You can hear them talked about Priscilla and Aquila in Acts, which we'll talk about later. But this friendship seems evenly said. He says, greet them both, Priscilla and Aquila. And if you read that whole list of names in 16, there are times when he says, greet this person's mother or greet this person and their children. But he doesn't mention the other spouse or the other partner. Like I said, marriage is one of those ways that Christ uh, illuminates or, or tells us his love for us. But marriage is not the only way. Like I said, Paul, who we don't think was married, has many friends here, and he has friends that he even calls beloved. My beloved, Apennitus, verse 5, and Pelatus, verse 6, Stachys, verse 9. Beloved here can also be translated my dear, my favorite. I remember the night that Rachel and I got married. Um, we were walking out of the reception, and I still had my suit on. She still had her dress on, and we were going to the hotel. And um, I got something that most people probably don't appreciate, which is unsolicited advice on your wedding night. And it was from a stranger. We were walking through the parking lot, going to the hotel. And this guy yells out to me, he goes, hey, congratulations. I've got one piece of advice for you. Be your wife's best friend or someone else will. That quote stuck with me to this day. Uh, it was very memorable, but it was wrong. Um, Paul has favorite friends. He has best friends and they are not his spouse. The reason that I think Paul's approach here to friendship, that he has these beloved friends, these best friends, these favorite friends, he calls out here in Romans 16. The reason I think that's wise is because every person that you're in relationship with, if they are a Christian, is just a different member of the body of Christ. And if you put all the relational expectations that Christ gives us on another person, even if that person is your spouse, you're going to crush them. When Proverbs says that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, it's pointing us to Jesus. It's not pointing us to our spouse. It's not pointing us to our kids. It's not pointing us to even one particular friend. Jesus is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. And like I said, any person you put all of those relational expectations on, even if they're your spouse, you will crush them. What this means for us, particularly in friendship in life, is that you can have many beloveds, many best friends. It doesn't just have to be one. You can have many friends in different seasons of life who are, who are worthy and, and, and particularly helpful to you during that time. And practically speaking, when it comes to marriage with your spouse, you don't have to put all of the relational expectations on them. One of my favorite things to do in the summertime is go see the Steelers practice in Latrobe. This typically happens in July, which means it's about 90 degrees outside. It's an hour and a half drive each way. And um, it's normally a whole day activity to get to the city and back. So you're, you're burning a whole Saturday. And I enjoy it because it's free, first and foremost. But I like to just watch for three hours all the different drills they're doing, all the players who are looking good, who's not looking so good. And it's, it's, it's an investment of time. And normally it gets sweaty, but I, I really enjoy it. But what this means, from a friendship standpoint, is that I don't have to say to Rachel, who's my wife, um, I don't have to say to Rachel, hey, I enjoy this, and if you love me, you have to enjoy this as well. That's what friends are for. Friends can help us experience those joys in life that perhaps our spouse doesn't necessarily like. Uh, same thing for her. When she gets really deep into Harry Potter and is reading all the books and watching all the movies, enjoy. I'm going to go to Latrobe for the day. 
you enjoy and watch all the movies and we, I'll be back. And that kind of dynamic doesn't diminish a marriage. That's a healthy dynamic because Jesus is our ultimate friend. And all of the relationships we experience in life, friendships, marriages, children, all of that is just pointing us to his ultimate love for us. Paul had friends whom he uh, transcended family relationships with. Paul had friends whom he called beloved or favorite. Paul also had friends who suffered with him. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. If you want to find out who likes you, invite people over for a party. If you want to find out who's friends with you, tell people you're moving and that you need help. Friends will suffer with you. Friends will go through it with you. We can all probably think of times where there was adversity in life, even just the simple adversity of having to pack all your stuff up in boxes and lug it out of the house and put it somewhere else, where adversity was hard and adversity was there, and the only thing that got us through it was our friends. A friend to call, a friend to cry with, a friend to join you in that mess. And for believers, what's helpful about having Jesus as the friend who sticks closer to a brother, is that closer than a brother, is that when we are walking with friends, walking through things with friends who are suffering, we have an easy role, a simple role, which is to be present with them. Our primary role as believers with our friends who are suffering is to be there and be present with them and remind them of who Jesus is. I, I, I think there's an inverse or there's an opposite way of how not to do this in the Bible. If you read about the account of Job who suffered greatly and had friends there with him, who were good for a time, but then ultimately overstepped and tried to step into that place where only Jesus can minister to us. This is the account of Job after the Lord speaks to his friends and rebukes them for speaking falsely about him, starting at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temnite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So like I said, there are times where we suffer things in life, and as friends, we can want to overstep and explain away or explain what God is doing or who God is in ways that the Bible doesn't make clear. So being a friend to those in suffering, a good friend to those in suffering, means speaking the truth about God to those who are suffering and saying, hey, I'm here you, I'm here for you, I want to help you, I want to be with you, I want to pray with you but I don't have all the answers. Jesus, Colossians says, Jesus is the manifestation of God's invisible presence. And oftentimes, the thing that we want and the thing that we need the most when we're suffering is God's presence. And so as a friend, what can be very helpful is to be with people and also in gentle ways remind them, I am not the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I am not the manifestation of God's invisible qualities. I cannot explain the unexplainable nature of God. I cannot explain things the Bible doesn't make clear. Oftentimes, that's why or how something happened to you. Why did that catastrophe happen? Why did that disaster happen? I don't know. But as your friend, I know God knows, and I care. And I'm here with you to pray with you, to sit with you, to help with the practical things as you go through this hard, difficult time. One day, and, and as friends, we can point each other to that eternal vision. One day, we will be with the friend who sticks closer than a brother. One day, all of the unexplainable will be explained. And until that day, I'm here with you to suffer with you and to be with you. Brene Brown is a uh, leadership coach, and she said um, about faith, who I think she might be a Christian, but she mentions faith a lot in her work, but she, she does leadership coaching for large corporations and companies. And she said, uh, quoted one time when talking about the role faith plays in her life. She said, 
I hoped faith would be an epidural for pain. It turns out faith is a midwife who says, push, I'm here, and sometimes it hurts. Friends are the voice of that midwife to say, hey, push, let's keep pushing, let's stay in this, even when it hurts. Paul needed friends like that because Paul had a lot of pain in his life. I wasn't there when Paul and Andronicus and Junia were in prison together when he talks about them being in prison, but I imagine it might have been something like when Paul was in prison with Silas. You can read about this in the book of Acts. This is the account of Paul being thrown in prison with Silas. The crowd joined an attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped down and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fashioned their feet with stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas are beaten, they're flogged, they're thrown in prison, they're chained up in a cell, and the only two voices you hear singing to God are them at midnight. To me, that's an example or an illustration of pushing, pushing each other as friends. We can't explain why we're here. We don't have any grand scheme to get out of this prison, but we're going to call out to God together because that's what good friends do. Paul also had friends that were in the faith before him. Verse 7, again, Junia and Andronicus, who are in the faith before me. Now, I'm speculating a bit, but it might be Junia and Andronicus who taught a young, zealous Paul, hey, if you get thrown in prison, the only way to pass the time is to pray and sing. If you do anything else, you'll get bored and it'll be more miserable. But friends who have been in the faith longer than us can give us that kind of advice, can talk to us about following Jesus to places that we haven't been yet. And I think a really helpful example and a picture of this goes back to Priscilla and Aquila. If you look in Acts 18, there's this man named Apollos. And he comes to Ephesus, picking up in 24. He was an educated man from Alexandria. He knew the scriptures very well. Apollos had been taught the way of the Lord. He spoke with great power. He taught the truth about Jesus, but he only knew about John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Priscilla and, Aqu so, so Priscilla and Aquila heard him. So they invited him to their home, and they gave him a better understanding of the way of God. So Paul is a witness to all this. You have this young guy named Apollos. He's bold. He's educated. He knows the scriptures. He's out there letting his voice be heard. He's probably got his chest buffed out talking about the truth he knows. And Priscilla and Aquila overhear him and they think, oh, he's, he's missing something there about baptism. And I love how they handle this because when you correct someone, you can correct them as a friend or you can correct them as an enemy. And here, Priscilla and Aquila choose friendship. They invite him in and they talk to him about a better way to explain baptism. Like I said, correction can make, you can make friends with correction or you can make enemies. And in modern day, Priscilla and Aquila could have posted on social media about how off this man was about his theology. They could have gossiped to their friends, look at this guy. They could have talked to their other church leaders and publicly condemned him. They could have gained a following by talking about how bad what someone else was doing was, but they chose friendship. They brought him in and they explained a better way. And I wonder how many of our disputes in our modern day would be settled if we took the route of Priscilla and Aquila when you hear someone in error, invite them in, and attempt to explain a better way. One last one. Paul has friends from different walks of life, and you can see this come in through a couple of different angles. The first is that Paul has friends with women, which to us might not sound that uncommon, but in his day was pretty uncommon. Starting out in the, in the beginning of 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centrea, 
that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So he's not just friends with Phoebe, but he highly esteems her as a patron and a companion of his. So friendship for Paul is not just doing manly things with men and going to Latrobe to watch the Steelers practice. It's being around people who are different than him and learning from them and esteeming them and encouraging them in their gifts. And this is not just Phoebe, one-off friend. This is nine other women that are mentioned in this list. I think that was in our discussion guide last week. There are nine other women that Paul mentioned in his list, in this list of friends, which is very countercultural for his day. Paul is also friends with Gentiles. Again, not common in his day. Paul is a Jew. These are different cultural, ethnic groups. And Paul is friends with members of that other cultural and ethnic, and you could say religious group. So what's interesting is that in Romans, Paul has been preaching this gospel about how Jesus being the Messiah, being crucified for our sins, means that anybody, Jew or Gentile, can be included in God's people. And what I love is that shows up and it's reflected in his relationships and in his friendships. So it's not just head knowledge that sounds good and it looks good on a page, but it's practical. And he's living out the call to make disciples of all nations or all people groups. He's living that out, and you can see it reflected in his friendships, especially the last few rows of names there, the last few verses, are all Greek-sounding names, which indicates that, again, these might be Greek or Gentile people. You also see Paul mentioning, greet this person who is my kinsman, meaning they're my fellow Jew. And he doesn't give that, de- or doesn't give that connotation to everybody, meaning that there are both Jews and Greeks in this list of friends. So, so far, everything we've been saying is good, right? Friendship is, is sweet. It's wonderful. It's great. There are friends that are different than me. There are friends that are in the faith longer than me. There are friends that I can suffer with. But some of you have maybe experienced the bad side of friendship. Miscommunication, strained relationships, disagreements. And what's interesting is that Paul experienced it too. Not in these verses, but in other places, especially if you look at Acts, Paul does ministry with a man named Barnabas. Now, Paul had a pretty radical conversion story. He was originally called Saul. He was a persecutor of Christians. And then after he's converted, Barnabas is actually one of the first people to vouch for him. I think I have some of this here. No, not quite. That's okay. Barnabas is one of the first people to vouch for Paul's character if you read in Acts 11.24. And in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit sends Paul and Barnabas on mission together. So kind of pairing them up and saying, hey, you guys go off and, and spread the message of the gospel. Convert people, baptize them. Be missionaries. But Paul and Barnabas have what the Bible calls a sharp disagreement about whether to bring a man named Mark with them on a missionary journey. Now, Mark had previously deserted them, so they were probably out, and it got a little little thick, and Mark decided he didn't want to take the heat, and he leaves. Now, Barnabas, the name, means son of encouragement. So the disagreement here could be Paul saying, look, I don't think we can take this guy with us because he deserted us once. And Barnabas, being the encourager that he is, saying, no, let's give him another chance. Let's encourage him. Let's see if he can stick with us this time. Either way, they can't sort it out. They have a sharp disagreement, and they part ways. Paul takes a man named Silas with him, and we don't hear about it until later on down the line. But we do see, it turns out maybe Barnabas was right, because Mark, as mentioned by Paul in Timothy, as a helpful member of the ministry, So it's worth noting that maybe Paul was wrong about Mark, but we don't really see um, any real, like, connection between when that happened. But what I find interesting about Paul and Barnabas 
is it shows that it's possible for two spirit-filled, good character, on mission, men who have good intentions to disagree and to disagree to the point where they actually like have to put distance between each other. They part ways. And we don't know everything. And sometimes that not knowing everything can create disagreements that get pretty intense, right? There's no Bible verse that says whether or not Mark is going to desert you again. So as friends, you have to figure it out. And sometimes you can't, and that leads to disagreements. And sometimes disagreements, like I said, that, need, that, that show that we need to go our separate ways. Now, that, that parting of ways does not mean that we stiff arm everyone we disagree with every time there's a disagreement that comes up. I actually appreciate in Romans 12, it talks about as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. So as far as it depends on you, make the phone call, invite the person over for dinner, sit them down, talk about whether or not you can agree on this thing. And sometimes you can't. But as far as it depends on us, we are called to live peaceably with everybody. Do what you can to maintain relationships and even friendships. But what we see with Paul and Barnabas is that doing everything you can is, as far as it depending on you still might mean that you have distance between yourselves. There's no uh, mention of Paul, or Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas having this great reconciliation moment where they come back together and they reunite and they do mission together like they were and they're shoulder to shoulder again. Paul actually does mention Barnabas in a favorable way. This is in Colossians 4. So he seems to indicate like, hey, I'm so cool with this guy, but we don't get the indication that they're arm in arm doing ministry together like they once were. And that's the reality of friendship. Sometimes we have disagreements. We sort it out in the Lord and we agree that we're, we're still brothers in Christ, but there has to be distance between each other. That's because we live in a fallen world and we're still sinners and we don't know everything. So there's a bitter and a sweet that comes with friendship. The sweet is I get people who are in the faith before me. They're close like family. They can teach me and train me up in the Lord. There are different cultures and different types of people I can know through friendship, and that's all good. But then there's the bitter as well, where I can have disagreements and strained relationships that sometimes this side of heaven might not get fully worked out. Now, there are two responses that we can have to this reality of friendship, this bitter and sweet. The first is to say, well, there's a possibility that this could go wrong. And I think all of us may, may be content towards one or the other in different seasons of life. The first response is to say, well, I'm not going to be close with anybody. It's just going to be me and Jesus. I'm not going to make friends with anybody. If I have family, I'll be close and tight with my family, but that's really it. I'm not going to make friends with anybody else. Well, Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, like we've been saying. And Jesus not just suggests, but commands to us, we are to love each other. And that loving each other is not just our friend. It's not just our spouse or our kids not just even just our fellow church members, but it is our friends. And what's interesting about friendship is, you know, when you get married to someone, there's a legal document that holds it in place. When you have kids, if you neglect those kids, there are legal actions that can be taken. Even as a church member, if you decide to just stop showing up to church, the elders will give you a call and say, hey, what's going on? But friendship is, is that one that can kind of just slide under the radar. You don't sign an agreement to become someone's friend. You don't have legal documents or legal actions that be taken if you decide not to be someone's friend. But you could be in just as much trouble, just as much trouble as when you neglect a spouse or neglect a kid or neglect church members, when you neglect friendship. The reason I say that is Jesus used friendship to illuminate his love for us. No greater love than a man has this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. So what this means is that if you're not investing in and in walking in intentional, deep, loving friendships, you could be missing out 
on knowing the friendship love that Jesus has for you. The reason I say that is because a lot of you are parents, right? And the Bible also talks about the father heart of God, that he loves us as his children. And I've heard almost every person I say become a parent say, you know, I never really grasped the father heart of God until I held the baby in my arms and until I raised my child and I saw them grow up and I I worked through all those struggles of being a father or a mother. And that made me really understand the father heart of God. It's the same thing with friendship. Jesus describes his love for us as friends. And so if we're not investing in deep, purposeful relationships and friendships, we could be missing out on a key illuminating factor of knowing what it means for Jesus to call us his friend. That is something that I think we all maybe need to dwell on. We're not just disciples. We're not just children. We are friends of Jesus, and he calls us his friends. Proverbs 18 doesn't say that as long as you have the friend that sticks closer than a brother, then you can just you know, disregard all friendships. It's just you and Jesus. It's a both and. Jesus is the ultimate relationship, the ultimate friend that we will have. And if you don't have reliable friends who will point you to Jesus, your life will come to ruin. So if you see your life in ruin, or if you see struggles, hardships, this could be a time to investigate. What does friendship look like for me? And that is a difficult thing as an adult. Because as kids, you see the same people on the playground every day at recess, you start playing sports with them, you say, hey, let's be friends, and you're friends. And you see each other every day, and you get to play kickball together. Not the same as an adult, because you have commitments, you have time, you have work, you have church, you have all types of other things you have to do. And it can be difficult to commit to friendship. But it's worth it. The second response to the reality of friendship, aside from neglecting friendship, is codependence. So you hear the good, you hear the friend that, that sticks closer to the brother, and you know it's Jesus, but ultimately I've got all these other friends who are going to meet my needs, and every time I'm in trouble, I'm going to call someone, or every time I'm in trouble, I'm going to text someone, or every time I'm in trouble, I'm going to invite someone over. And that's all well, and that's all good. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But what it does mean is that we need to have proper expectations for our friends. There will be times when you call a friend and they won't call you back. You'll text them, they won't text you back. You'll ask them for advice and they'll be wrong. (laughs) Like the guy on my wedding night who just shouted his unsolicited advice. Or you'll ask them for advice and, and maybe they'll be a good friend and say, I actually don't know, but let's pray together. There are times where we will grasp for things in friendship that we can only find in Christ. And so what that should do is not have us disappointed in and continually reaching out to people and saying, well, this person didn't text me back, so I'm going to text them. Or this person didn't give me the advice I want, so I'm going to go to somebody else. That could be a place for us to say, Jesus, help me. You are the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Just like we were singing, I need you. I need you now. I love how in Revelation it talks about Jesus wiping away every tear from our eye. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. In this life, friends will wipe your tears away. That's a good thing. That's a good friend to sit with you and to wipe your tears as you deal with the difficulties and hardships of life. But Revelation says Jesus will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more crying. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he won't just wipe away one tear. He won't just be with us in sorrow. He'll remove the sorrow. He won't just be with us in pain. He will take away the pain. And we'll be with him forever. So as we take communion, 
as we prepare to celebrate and remember Jesus, let's remember that Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I would encourage us to not lose sight of friendship in this life. That can be something that's oftentimes not talked about in the church. But friendship is a worthy, godly way to remind yourself of the love that Jesus has for you. No greater love has a man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Invest in friendships. Make the effort to call or to reach out or to just be with those who are suffering. That's one good way to develop uh, friendships. Uh, One of our uh, former pastors who said something really wise about friendship, he said, if you want a friend, be a friend. So if you know people in your life that are suffering, that are going through it, give them a call. Ask to come over. Ask to, to sit with them or if there's anything you can pray with them about. Invest in friendship. It is a worthy and godly pursuit. And remember that Jesus is ultimately the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we will be with you and know you and be known by you forever. That you will wipe away every tear that every sorrow, every disappointment, everything we felt in this life that we felt like didn't meet our expectations, ultimately, we will have met in you and we will be with you forever. Lord, we ask tonight that for those of us who don't know you or who don't um, obey or know to trust you, God, that we would trust you, that it wouldn't be about uh, what our mom or our dad or our kids or Even our other friends do, God, but we would, in each of our hearts tonight, investigate, am I a friend of God? Do I obey his word? Lord, help us to investigate now as we take communion, if there's any sins, any things that we're doing that you said we should be doing. Lord, that you commanded us to love each other, God. Help us, by the power of your spirit, to put our sin to death, to love each other more. Because you were the ultimate friend to us, God. Help us to, in response, by the power of the Spirit, obey your word and do so with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.